morning, church. Am I good? Mike, Mike is good? Awesome. Aaron said he's going to have to adjust me today. Uh, I might get loud, so I, I don't know what happens. I, I just, this is, this is not normally how I talk, but it just comes out that way. So anyway, um, we're going to be continuing in the book of 1 John chapter 3 today. We're going to be covering verses 11 through 18, so if you could uh, turn with me to find that passage of Scripture, and I'm going to have us to stand uh, one more time just to read these verses, and then we'll get into the message that I've entitled, The Love of Christ Resembled. So if you can just stand with me, please, for one moment as I read 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 to 18. And it reads, For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let's pray once again. God, we need you to do a work in our lives. This stuff does not come naturally to us, God. And with the best of our performances, we all fall short. Open our hearts, open our minds, and speak to us today. In your son's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Whenever someone has a child, um, Steve alluded to this a couple weeks ago, one of the first things we do is we try to see the similarities between the parents and the child, and they say, you know, this, this, per, this child has my, my hands, my eyes, or whatever. Um, there, there are these similarities, these resemblances that we try to identify between parent and child. Um, in, in my house, my wife makes it unmistakably clear that the kids look like her. There's no argument, right? There's just not, not even a debate, right? And it's, it's funny how these things work out because when they start acting up and they start acting the fool, then she's like, nah, those, those are your kids. So I'm like, yeah, how does this work here, right? So there are similarities between parents and children, and those similarities are not just the physical appearances, but sometimes it also talks about the characteristics that a child has. And the main idea, the central idea that I'm working with today that I believe this passage points out is this, that there is a striking resemblance between God and his children. There's a striking resemblance 
between God and his children, that there should be something about the way that we operate, the way that we work, the way that we function, that should remind us of who God is. And the first point that goes along with this is that this resemblance to God is more than just name, being called children of God, but it actually refers to our character. It's not a name only, but it's also in character. We've seen these false ads before. I think we were in St. Augustine a couple months ago, and there was a place that had an ad that they had the best pizza in the nation or something, and they had a little clip out like it was a, a newspaper article. And I go to this restaurant, and I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, why would you even put that label up? This food is awful, right? And so we know, we can relate to how people falsely advertise something and say that this is supposed to be whatever, but in actuality, it's totally the opposite. Not when it comes to the children of God. Not just being called children of God, but the character should reflect who God is. This concept of resemblance, Jesus even pointed it out in John chapter 8, verse 44, when he was talking to the religious leaders and he said, you are of your father, the devil. And what he was saying is that you, you, you were prompted by the devil, that there's something that resembles the devil in the way that you act. And so when we get to 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, we read this a couple of weeks ago. It says, behold, what manner of love that God has given us, that we are called the children of God. And so what I'd like to suggest today is that this title, children of God, is not just a label that God slaps on us that that has no meaning to it. That there's characteristics that the children of God have that resemble who God is. God gave the name. He associates his name with us. And it's not based on our performance. So it's not that God says, man, you've been doing really good. Now you're worthy to be called a child of God. No. It's based strictly on his love but by a, as, as a byproduct of, of us having the title of children of God, there are certain characteristics, there are certain things that we do that are inconsistent with that identity that he has given us. And so then the second point that goes along with that is that it matters then how believers relate to one another. Because our identity determines our activity. Our doing proceeds from who we are. Our doing proceeds from our being. And the reason why this is important is because all throughout the book of John, especially in chapters 1 and in chapter 2, and even in chapter 3, he makes these distinctions that there are people out here who are professing something that they aren't living out. He's saying in chapter 1, he says, in chapter 1, verse 6, that there are people who are claiming that their identity is fellowship with God, but in actuality... They practice walking in darkness. And he says, you're a liar. You're a liar. You can't do that. You can't profess and walk, practice this. You're a liar. In chapter 2, verse 9, he says, there are some that claim that their identity is light, but they practice hatred towards their brothers. And so he says that you're walking in darkness. Chapter 2, verse 19, he says that there are some who claim to be of us, but they left. They left the church. They're no longer amongst the body And so in practice, they're not one of us. So much so that he says that their true identity is going to be revealed in chapter 2, verse 19. It says that it might become plain that they are not of us. They aren't of us. 
And so all throughout the book of John so far, he's trying to make a distinction between those people who profess to be believers, to be in light, to be walking in love, but in actuality, what they're practicing is something totally different. And he's saying, we can't have that, consist- that inconsistency. There has to be a correspondence. Identity. So the way that we live then is indicative of who we are. It's evident of the spirit of God being alive in us when we live in a manner that's consistent with our identity. And so then it matters how believers relate to one another because as, a, as redeemed children of God, we should live in correspondence with our identity. And we can do this because of what it says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, that his seed remains in us. That seed of God remains in us. That is our true identity. And he's encouraging the believers to live this out. So 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. So he states, For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We talked about this before. This is nothing new. This is the picture of how your life should look. John chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus says that this is a new commandment that I give to you, that just as I have loved you, you ought to love one another. So this whole sense of brotherly love is evidence that God's seed is remaining in you, that there's a similarity, that there's resemblance between God and his children. And again, this is more than just the title, but the characteristics that you live out. So he goes on in verse 12. We should not be like Cain. Okay? So in verse 11, he says, this is what you should look like. This is, this is how you should, your life should look. And now in verse 12, he's saying, this is a picture of how your life should not look. You should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one. Of the evil one. Again, we just talked about that, right? Where there was a resemblance that their characteristics um, that Cain displayed that were not consistent, who murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. That he operated, the way that he functioned, that there was something off in it. And so what is John saying at this point? Why, why, why is he going you know, to the extreme of using Cain as an example? Well, again, remember in chapter 2, he speaks of many people who professed to be believers. There are even some that who left the church. And he's saying that Cain set an example that we need to avoid. So now the connection between the believers and Cain is this whole concept of brotherliness. John just told us that we should, be, we should follow this new commandment, that we should love one another, And he points to Cain because Cain is the first brother. He's the first brother, his brother Abel. And we're going to read that in uh, Genesis chapter 4. The connection between what he's telling the believers and Cain is that there's this concept of brotherliness. And what he's saying is that do not be like that brother. Don't display the kind of brotherly characteristics that Cain did. Because that's of the world. 
So what did this brotherliness look like that Cain displayed? We're going to jump over to Genesis chapter 4, and we're going to read a couple verses so you can get a fuller context of what John is describing here and what he's getting at. Genesis chapter 4, and verse 1 says, Now Adam knew his wife, Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother? Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? So this example of brotherliness, John is saying, we want to avoid that. We don't want to be like this brother. A couple things about Cain. Number one, Cain's heart was not right before God. Verse seven says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? There was something about the way that Cain operated, his doings, that was not right before God. And whenever our hearts are not right before God, there is no way that we can be right before our brothers. There's no way. It's impossible. Right? Jesus even told us that the two greatest commandments is to love God and to love our neighbor. And so first, if our hearts are not right before God, we cannot be right before our brothers. Second thing. Cain's offering was displeasing to God. If your heart is not right before God, whatever you do is going to be tainted by that too as well. It doesn't matter how good you can preach. doesn't matter how good you can serve. If your heart is tainted before God, your offering will also be tainted as well. And he points that out in verse 5. But for Cain and his offering, it wasn't just Cain, and it just wasn't the offering, but it was both. Cain and his offering, he had no regard for. Number three, when God brought to Cain's attention what the problem was, his response was anger. Five and six. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. There was a defensiveness, right? There was a sense of entitlement. Refusal to deal with his heart. Point number four about Cain. Cain was driven by jealousy. Verse five, it says, So Cain, so Cain was very angry and his, and his face fell. 
And this is directly in response to Abel's sacrifice being accepted and his rejected. So there was a sense of competition where he viewed his brother as someone to compete against, someone to be jealous of because his sacrifice was accepted and his wasn't. It would be one thing if, if, if Cain, in the midst of all of this, was broken because his, his sacrifice was not accept, acceptable to God and his heart was broken. But that's not what the scriptures say. It said that he was angry. Entitlement. Next point about Cain. He was overcome by anger toward his brother. Verse 8 says that he rose up. He was controlled by a destructive passion, not brotherly affection. Point number six about Cain. Instead of preserving his brother's life, he took his life. Verse 8, he killed his brother. He refused to deal with his own heart, and he ended up taking this out on his brother. Next point, no remorse for his brother. Verse 9, God says, where's your brother Abel? I don't know. How am I supposed to know? <laughs> I mean, at this point, he only has one brother. I don't know where he is. He lies to God. He doesn't confess it. Doesn't take responsibility for his actions. I don't know. And then finally, he forsook the privilege to protect his brother. Am I supposed to be some kind of bodyguard now? Huh? Am I my brother's keeper? No sense of responsibility. He gets rid of his brother. He challenges God. And the problem is still there because it's an internal problem. He has a problem of the heart. And so John is saying, don't be like that kind of a brother who, yeah, he's a blood brother. But by the way that he interacts with his brother, by the way that he relates to his brother, he's displaying anything other than brotherliness. And so what John is saying is that don't be like Cain. Don't be like that kind of brother. Don't be a brother in name only. Don't be a brother in word only. But let your true identity reflect itself in the way that you interact with your brothers. And so when he says that... Um, that Cain was of the evil one, this is what he's speaking to. He's speaking about his identity. That Cain's act of murder is evidence that he was a brother in name only and that his true identity was of the world. So now we jump to verse 13, back to uh, 1 John. And it says, verse 13, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. So now he transitions from Cain to the world. Right after he talks about Cain killing Abel because his, right, uh, his actions were righteous and that he was righteous, he's saying now that the world does the same thing to those who are believers. So don't be surprised that the world does as the world does. So Cain corresponds to Abel just as the world corresponds to the believer. And so that's why in verse 14, he goes on to say that we know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers, that those are the righteous deeds that flow from us that are evidence that we have passed from death to life. So in other words, we know that we're saved because we bear this fruit of Christ resembling love towards our brothers. 
We know our identity because of the fruit that we display in our lives. And so then point three is this, that Christ resembling love toward believers is evidence of our salvation. The fact that we love the brothers is evidence, John is saying, that you have eternal life, that you've passed from death unto life. Matters then how we relate to our brothers and our sisters in Christ. Because again, if we have the seed in us, God's seed in us, it's going to produce some kind of fruit that's consistent with the nature of what we, of of our true nature. And so then there's a correlation between salvation and how we relate to other believers. It matters. And he continues, whoever does not love abides in death. So if there is no love that is bubbling out of us, he's saying that your identity is not life, that you are abiding in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. He's pretty, pretty black and white here, right? If you hate your brother, he's saying you're just like Cain. You know how we get around that? We say, well, I don't, I don't hate him. I just don't like him. I just don't want to be around him. Yeah, I don't hate him. So it's almost like it's okay to have an attitude of indifference towards others. Okay. Verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So again, if, this, if, if we claim to know this love from God, the truth as to whether or not we really know it is if this is something that is consistent with what we do. Are we laying down our lives for our brothers? And so point four is this, that intimately experiencing the love of Christ moves us to lay our lives down for other believers. That is characterized by a desire to and the corresponding laying down of our lives. It's, it, it's something that comes out of us. We're moved to do it. It's not the sense of begrudging obedience, going through the motions, but as we are consumed with the love of Christ, the fruit is that we love in the same way that Christ did. We move from self-preservation to the preservation of others, which is the opposite of what Cain displayed toward his brother. And he goes on to say in verse 17, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need. So this is something that you see. Once you see something, you can't unsee it, right? You see somebody in need, another believer, yet closes his heart against him. He's talking about the inward affections. How does the love of God abide in him? How can you see someone in need and shut up your heart towards him is what he's saying. Gets practical. There's always a tangible outworking. There's a sacrificial quality. It's not the sense of obligation. You're moved with compassion. There's a a sense of co-suffering, to suffer with others. There's a willingness to relinquish yourself. No longer driven by this sense of defensiveness. 
Your heart is free to give because the supply that you're getting from is not your own strength. It's not this contrived sense of effort that you're using to try to reach out to others with. It's empowered by God. So then in verse 18, he says, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. There's some people who can talk love. They can talk a real good love game, right? Oh, I love you, brother. I love you, man. But when it comes down to it, in need, where are you? Where are you at? <laughs> Let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. So one person may say, oh, well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm more than just to talk stuff. I can actually do something. But is it real? That's the other thing, right? So one person says, I love you, but they have no actions. But then the other one has the actions, but it's not sincere. So he's hitting, he's hitting both sides. He said, don't just talk, be about it. And not just be about it, but be sincere with it. Let not your love just be this rote, you know, kind of mechanical thing. But does your heart actually empathize with your brother and with your sister in Christ. And so the way that we relate to one another matters as believers. It matters. It matters. Because we always act consistent with who we are. And what John is saying is that if there is no consistency between what you profess and what you live, something is off. Something is deeply off. And so Cain, as a biological brother, did not relate to his brother Abel in a brotherly way at all. His actions only proceeded from the environment that housed it, right? And so John is saying to the believers, if you're saved, if you know him, then there's going to be some fruit that is consistent with that identity. It would be that there would be some fruit that is consistent with that claim that you are making. I'm reminded in John 15, verse 13, where Jesus says, greater love, there's no greater love than this, that a man will lay down his life for his friends. And in recent years, I know we're in a very divisive time on so many different issues within Christianity this verse couldn't be more true, that it really takes something deep to love the body of Christ. Because we can do some nasty stuff to people. The stuff that we say, how we respond to people, social media posts, I mean, you, you name it. You name it. It takes a deep love to love people who can hurt us the most. And I'm not talking about this humanly contrived thing that we do and we say to this love. How we relate to one another as brothers and sisters matters. Even so much so that Jesus says, by this will all people know that you are my disciples. Because of what? Because of your love for one another. It's our love for one another that convinces the world of who Jesus is. Think about that. Really? This is how the world will know that you are my disciples. 
Not because of your theology, not because of how many points that you can make, not because of your argumentation, it's because of the way that you love one another. Do you look like Jesus? Serious. When you look in the mirror, well, maybe that might not be a good question. <laughs> but you get it, right? Do people feel the aroma? Do, do people smell the aroma of Jesus? Can, can, can they feel it? Can they sense it? The, brotherly, the brotherliness of Cain versus the brotherliness of Jesus. Jesus is described as the firstborn of many brothers. Romans chapter 8, verse 29, it says this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And so Jesus came to reverse the cycle of this brotherhood that was displayed by Cain. Take a look at the slides. Displeasing to God. Here's the contrast with Jesus. His heart was pleasing to God. Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Cain's offering was displeasing to God. Jesus, on the other hand, true brother, his sacrifice was acceptable to God. John chapter 8, verse 29 says this, And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And then in Luke chapter 23, verse 46, Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. His sacrifice was acceptable to God. God did not reject that sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. He was angry when God told him what his problem was. Jesus, on the other hand, God affirmed that he was pleased with the person of Jesus. Matthew chapter 17, verse 5, Peter was still speaking. This is on the Mount of Transfiguration. When behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. God affirmed Jesus. There's no issues with him. Cain's brotherhood, driven by jealousy. Jesus was driven by the will of the Father. John chapter 4, verse 34. Jesus says this, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. This is what gives me sustenance. This is what gives me nourishment. Driven by the will of the Father. Cain's brotherhood, overcome by anger. Whereas Jesus' brotherhood, Overcome by love. John chapter 14, verse 31. And it says this. Jesus says, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. This is what drove Jesus. Yes, he came. Yes, he died for sins. But he wanted his love for the Father to be known. This is what drove him. He took his brother's life. The brotherliness displayed by Jesus, Jesus laid down his life. John chapter 10, verse 18, it says, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I'm willing to give my life for you. 
the brotherhood of Cain, no remorse for his brother. Jesus had compassion towards his brother. Luke 22, verse 32, it says, but I have prayed for you. This is Jesus when he's talking to to Peter. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus knew he was going to be betrayed, but he still stuck by his brothers. And finally, Cain forsook the responsibility to protect his brother. Jesus was characterized by assuming that responsibility for his brothers. Look at what he says in John chapter 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He assumed responsibility. He said, I'm not like one of those hired hands who whenever the danger comes, he's going to jet and he's gone. I'm going to assume the responsibility to lay down my life for my brothers. And so point five is this, simply that Christ exemplifies the epitome of what it means to be a brother. That Christ exemplifies the epitome of what it means to be a brother. This is the kind of love that transforms churches, that transforms communities, that transforms our relationships when we have that love abiding in us. And this is why the word is so important where it says that God's seed remains in us. So it means that as believers, we have the stuff that could produce this in us. We have it. Is it being fleshed out? Is it being embodied? And the only way that this can become a reality in our lives is when our identity is wrapped up in his. And he allows that fruit to be born in our lives. That's our only hope for us to live this out. And so as I close, I want to ask you that question again. Is the fragrance of Christ emanating in our relationships with one another? Do people sense that? Do people feel that? The sense of sacrificial love toward one another. Now, the last thing I want us to to leave this sermon thinking is, I just got to try harder. Please, please don't. Please don't. God has to do a work in our hearts to soften our hearts. And a part of the reason why it's so exhausting dealing with other believers sometimes is because we're probably just doing it in our own effort. We're trying to do it. We're trying to be, I'm just, I'm, he working my nerves. I'm trying, I'm trying. <laughs> and, and we can do the nice Christian thing, you know, I'll sit by him. You know, I'll say hello to him. But our heart is so far from our brothers and sisters. Like, you get it? Like we, we, we play the games. We go through the motions. And God has to get us to a place where our hearts are softened. And God is saying, I got to do this work in your life. You can't do it on your own. You can't love the way that I need you to love by yourself. You can't do it. You can't do it. My prayer today is that we get to a place of true surrender. 
This is what convinces the world that Jesus is real. If you're a believer here today, I want to invite you to get the emblems. Um, There should be a basket. And this is why Jesus came, because we can't do it. Sometimes family, sometimes family is the hardest people to love. Let's be real. Just, just, just consider your own human family for a moment, right? <laughs> we have some family is just like, my goodness, man, I don't even want to go to the family reunion. I don't even want to see him or her, Right? God, I need a, a special dose of grace because I, I, I just can't do it, right? Family can be tough to love. But Jesus died to bring us into the family. And he says, I'm going to display for you a different type of brotherliness that does not look like Cain. I'm going to establish a new brotherhood in the person of Christ, and he's going to be the firstborn of many brothers. And by us partaking today is a sign that we are under his lordship. So please partake with me.